Welcome to the Paradise Found podcast with me, Jane Edwards. This is a podcast where I interview comedians and creatives about their favourite documentary. My name is Jane Edwards and I'm a writer, comedian and actor who just happens to love documentaries. So I was really thrilled to find so many other people who love them too. In this first episode, I spoke to John Tucker, who is the creator of This Foul Earth, which is an unmissable podcast that I urge you all to check out. Um, He is also the writer of the award-winning short film Bald. He is a fantastic streamer, one-time comedian, I hope he doesn't mind me saying that, and a really, really brilliantly talented comic book creator. So um, do go and check out his work. I'll be leaving his website in the show notes. And he's also a a good friend of mine. Um, And as you will find, has some of the best vibes that you have ever come across. Really, this this guy is a vibe master. I interviewed John about hypernormalization by Adam Curtis. Now, John is a, well, I think it's an understatement to say that he's a big Adam Curtis fan. Let me tell you, if you're into Adam Curtis in any way whatsoever, if you are just curious about the man, then you need to hear this podcast because John really is an expert. Um, I thought that I was an Adam Curtis fan, turns out I'm not. I'm a faker, I'm a fraud, I don't even deserve to call myself an Adam Curtis fan. John has so much knowledge on Adam Curtis and on his body of work and is also really funny. I absolutely love doing this episode. I love speaking to John, uh, so I hope that you enjoy it. I don't know, people, some people clap, don't they? So I don't really know why they do it. Yeah, but, do, do, do um, you want to create a spike? Like, do you want me to clap at my end with that help? It might do. I guess just you could do. There. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's for. Sure. <laughs> Okay, so um, I'm joined today by um, John Tucker, who is probably one of the most intense Adam Curtis fans I've ever met. 100%. So John has chosen um, Hypernormalization. Um, John, why have you chosen this film? Um, So I, I, I was... I was having an iron about which when you said, oh, you know, I'd like to speak to people about documentaries. Like, I, I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of documentaries. Like, there was a, a couple of films that I thought about talking about. So, like, I've talked about um, when we were kings and the Barkley Marathons on another podcast before because oh, um, they're two of my favourites. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think about Paris is Burning because I do really like that one. But yeah. I think the reason I settled on hypernormalisation is because um, I know that um, you are a fellow. Adam Curtis sympathizer, <laughs> which is not always a given. Yeah. Um, you've also got, you know, a, a deference for the big man. Of course. Um, but I think the, the like the th- the reason like I picked, the, I think the reason why like, I really liked it and the reason why I, I want to talk about it is because it, it, it for me it was kind of like like you know like the first band that you really get into when you're like a teenager. Yeah. So like in my case it was Nirvana. Like a lot of people I knew it was like Slipknot and stuff like that, right? And like Papa Roach, right? Well, like, Adam Curtis was my papa roach into politics do you know what I mean so like it was 
so it was like because I remember like because I because I went to Barry Comprehensive School, which is um a, which was an all boys school in Barry that was um so bad that they knocked it down a couple of years ago, and um there was like it wasn't because like some because when I got to university and spoke to some people, they had it felt to me like they were really involved in politics in like secondary school, and I was like, what secondary school did you go to where you were talking about this stuff? Because you know when I was at school, it was like. It just wasn't on anyone's, not really. I mean, some people were, but not really on anybody's radar. And I didn't really understand it or didn't really have an understanding of the world, really. And it was like, you know, um, you know, if you, in, in history class and all the rest of it, it was always like, well, you know, if you want to understand the world, and then you just you just watch BBC News or you listen to the radio, you listen to BBC Radio, mm. you know, and then you just piece it together from that. And, and those are and those are the like the correct sources, and those are like that's where you learn about the world and you piece it together as you go. And I remember trying, I remember like vaguely trying to like engage with the news, but I felt like it's just too much and I don't really understand anything that's going on. And then I remember like, I think it was like 2004, I remember seeing a couple of episodes of The Power of Nightmares, which was his thing about like the dark pessimism that's setting after Iraq. And I remember thinking, God, that's it. And I thought that's, and that's that, because it was the first time I'd seen somebody acknowledge that feeling of the world being completely out of control and you trying to impose an order on it. Because mm. in all yeah. the other documentaries, I think he's spoken about this in other interviews where he's like, you know, a lot of other interviews, a lot of other documentaries start with the premise that you and the documentary maker already know the same things. Mm. And it's like self-congratulatory. But like, you know, just to like circle back to Barry Comprehension School, there's like, and and it's like political status like mm. so it was an all boys school just outside of Cardiff and you know it was, it was a bit of a rough school and I remember one time um, I think Michael Howard was the leader of the Conservatives at the time mm. and he came to Barry Comprehensive School for like a photo op and to like to, and to give an assembly to us and I remember thinking like why is this happening and we, we were just uh, like the entire week before we came mm. it was like the teachers were like you if you embarrass us in front of Michael Howard we are going to be so cross with you <laughs> and we were like who is Michael Howard and they were like it's, it's really important don't you dare misbehave in front of Michael Howard and then he was up there giving a speech in front of us all mm. and one of the older boys at the back shouted out Gaylord to him <laughs> right <laughs> and they jumped on him like he pulled a gun right and he was dragged out there by his neck, and and, and this. But then, and another thing I remember about this now, thinking back on it, was like he just carried on talking like nothing had happened. And I remember looking at that and thinking, "Oh my god!" I think like like even the t- you know like he just didn't acknowledge it. I thought that's reptile behavior. But it yeah. was like so. I know it's a bit of a stretch, like, but I think like from from like my that was like the first political thing that I was like personal witness to mm. was like this. Tory coming to the school and someone yelling Gaylord at him and then I saw The Power of Nightmares a couple of years after that and then around the time that hypernormalization came out was around the time that like my political like my political ideas were starting to harden which I know is probably quite late in life I was in my like, late 20s but like because mm. it was around the time of like the Bernie thing and like Donald Trump's coming up in America famously and um, Corbyn in this country and I was starting to get the sense that like maybe that advice of you know I'd, you know, just read the Guardian and like listen to the BBC radio and that's the thing maybe that isn't like the best way to engage with the world mm. and then I saw this 
film because I was I was very into like um because I just started listening to like Chapel Trap House because the Bernie thing they were really covering the Bernie stuff in America and they had him on to talk about hypernormalization and I remember listening to him speak and thinking he was talking about you know the world is completely out of control and it's just you know um everything feels like it's fake and it's fallen apart but because you don't know anything else then you just got to go along with it and pretend it's all normal mm. like Michael Howard did when someone called him a gay lord and I thought <laughs> well <laughs> I thought he's right I thought that's and that's how I feel and that's how a lot of people I know feel so I watched the film and I was just flabbergasted by it you know and I come back to it every couple of years you know like it's one of those documents like some documentaries you watch them once and like for me that's mainly documentaries about you know if it's something about like D.B. Cooper or something like that you know what I mean like a like a like a like a weird incident or whatever stuff like that you can watch it once and be like right okay I've got everything I need from that but it's stuff like hypernormalization you can watch it and see something different in it every time and it's just a nice vibe film if you know what I mean like yeah. even if you don't fully understand exactly what's happening at every single moment it's just it's just a nice pleasant vibe yeah I, I just really like it and I, I think and I think he is he would probably reject this but I think he is an artist you know there is an artist who's a hypernormalization which I don't think he probably wouldn't like that but like, well no I'm a journalist you know but he, I think he is an artist and I think it is an artfully made film and I've been talking for quite a long time now James so do you want to say something <laughs> do you want to say something <laughs> I wrote down a question to ask you and I guess I'm like jumping the gun but that like kind of leads nicely into it like do you think that his films are meant to be educational or entertainment or both? I know it's like a quite a big question and it's like quite early on in the podcast, but if you want to just have a crack at that, that would be... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's probably one, it's one of those questions, I think, like if you if you asked him directly, mm. I think he would like, he would demur a bit on that, you mm. know, but I think, because if you, if you listen to him speaking about his films, like he always says like they're highly, they're, they're, they're like him, they're highly emotionalised mm. and, you know, he's obviously trying to persuade you with music that you like and but he's honest about what he's doing is you know he always says this is a story about whatever right N not this is the truth this is a story about this is a this is a possible answer to whatever the issue may be you know so i think i, I don't know like i think they, they are educational i think but but educational about something that's not qu it's not quite like a hard hit it's not it's not like the world at war you know what i mean it's like i, I don't know it's, if they're really hard to categorize you know like there's no nobody else is doing documentaries like that i haven't seen anybody else who's done that kind of thing so i was re-watching bits of hypernormalization and readiness for this and there was a bit where he was talking about um bashar al-assad in syria and it was like when he became president like he wasn't supposed to be president his brother basil al-assad was meant to be president of syria but he died in a car crash so he said um bashar al-assad became the president of syria and adam curtis says right prior to this he had been the head of the syrian computer club and his favorite band was the electrolyte orchestra and now he was president right now those two pieces of information are not like they don't they don't help you understand the situation in Syria any better, but they do help you kind of understand the man and the position he was put in and the emotion behind it. So like and I think like can't get you out of my head like his the series that came after hypernormalization kind of touched on that as well, where it was like mm. you know, it, it's not yeah, it's all factually correct and but but the but the curation of the material I think does kind of put it right on the line between it I, this isn't a, this isn't an answer to the question sorry but you know it's right no on it's the, interesting but it's right on the line between like education and entertainment if you know what I mean 
Definitely. I think, yeah, because you can't... Because even writing that question, I knew that I was, like, being a bit of a dick because it's, like... <laughs> <laughs> I knew that you weren't going to actually be able to say one or the other. But because I'm the same, I just don't... I feel like I learn things in a way, but it's not so... It's, like, I can't put my hand on what I've learned. I just, like, get... You get more of just a sense of the world and there's, like, snippets of things that you pick up on, like, little stories that he puts in about certain, like, you know the like timeline of things but I think in general I've always just come away with that kind of sense of like everything's just chaos and I liked watching that film yeah and I think that's enough you know like Mm. and and for me I found it really comforting you know and and I also with um because like again like to come back to like some of the, like when we talked about like some of the other documentaries they make because if you listen to him being like, in being interviewed they always ask him about like the music he picks and things like that and he said that he hates it when um you know whenever they show the city boys in london you know you, you always get um money by the pink floyd and i just roll my eyes and think ugh how obvious you know but <laughs> yeah and and when you, when you listen to him speaking about this you know it's it's like like that when he when he said about trying to create a mood that people like and trying to create an aesthetic, you know, like his style of filmmaking is is totally like unique, and you can you can you, you can look at it, and it's it's an incredible thing to uh, to be able to say about somebody who like never appears on camera to be able to look at like a montage of clips and be able to say that's Adam Curtis immediately to be able to identify his work when it's when it's all essentially there's no original material in it, it's all stock, you know. So I think like yeah, for me it's like it, I do find it reassuring because I in like um like can't get it out of my head, which I think that was the one where he started off with that David Gray quote, which is it you know like um you know um we made the world what it is, and if we can make it like this, we can make it something else. Yeah, you know, and yeah. even I, I think like can't get it out of my head was a bit more obtuse than hypernormalization, and it was a bit more all over the place. Mm-hmm. But he is right, you know, and and it did. I felt like hypernormalization for me, it did like. It, it put some like ideas and stuff in my head like it, it, well no it didn't put ideas in my head but it sort of like crystallized a lot of like thoughts and feelings I'd had that I hadn't really been able to like put a finger on before mm. do you know what I mean about like how like the world feels like strange and like hostile and if, but it feels like nobody really understands what's really happening mm. and then he puts this film together where it which shows how not only is that true but people are using it specifically to you know, to stage manage these things that have happened that seem disparate and not connected. But you know, things like you know how Gaddafi kept kept being wheeled out as like a sock puppet until they didn't have a use for him anymore, and things like, yes. and and then later on, you know, like um, um, Tupac's mother with the Black Panthers in can't get you out of my head and things like that. Like all these things that seem really disparate and not connected. You know, it's it's the way that it's like, well, yeah, they are connected, but essentially, so is everything, and they and therefore really nothing. You know, like yeah. it was. I don't know. It was just you know. It's uh, I, I really I'm being inarticulate. I think speaking about this, but you know, I think it was just it's the vibe and the mood, and it, I think it did help to crystallize a lot of feelings I'd had about the world. So I think they're, they're educational in that sense. But yeah, I, yeah. I just love him. I, I really, I really do love the big man. I gotta say, <laughs> I do love him. Honestly, I, I don't think you. I think you're being like very articulate. But I think like because when I try and talk about them, I feel like I'm being inarticulate. But then at the same time, they're representative of literally the whole world and everything that has ever happened within it. So it's like hard to kind of, like I say, it's it's just hard to put your finger on things. And I think that 
like you say, he just does such a good job of following those timelines. That obviously, because we live in them, we're not really following everything that's happening. We're just going, oh, and then that happened. And now Gaddafi's bad. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you don't really know why <laughs> things happen. To have it laid out like that is just very, like, it's kind of shocking a lot of the time. Yeah, because it's all happening at such a, a, a huge scale that mm. you you can't keep tabs on it all. Nobody can. Exactly. You know how can you how could you ever hope? And then and and then that you know like not only can you not keep tabs on it all mm. is Gaddafi good? Is Gaddafi bad? Oh, and now there's like a a BlackBerry video of him someone putting a stick up his ass and now he's dead. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's mm. like literally that's what happened. It was like he's good, bad, good, bad, dead, and it was just mm. it, it, we wheel him out when we need him. And then the people, like, you know, like your Bushes and your Blairs and all that, you know, like, mm. and it does feed into that thing of, you know, the, like, everybody knows that the system's corrupt and that these people should be in jail, but nothing yeah. ever happens. And it's just, well, that's just the way it is, you know? And, uh, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's nice to see it all just laid out in a way that, you know, makes you feel like, no, you know, it's not just you that doesn't doesn't have a handle on this like, like nobody yeah. does you know i reopened hyphen normalization you know in preparation for this podcast and i was like it's three hours long yeah <laughs> oh yeah i didn't so... rewatch the whole thing in prep for this no. yeah i was like i'm just gonna click on some sections see how it goes because i think like i'm not sure i can't like I guess all of his films like this in a way, but I think, was it, can I, I can't get you out of my head. There was one of them that I couldn't, I could not keep track of anything. But- I'm not at all criticising the big man. I'm sure there's reasons, there's methods behind the madness. When Mao's wife, like, showing her demise and things like this, it was just so all over the place. I can't even remember what else happened in yeah, it. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I, I had the same thing, you know, and there was um, that um, that Michael X, like, the like the revolutionary who yeah. killed a conservative <laughs> politician's daughter in Jamaica or something like that, and it was, but, it, but and, yeah, and then the Black Panthers and Tupac's mother and all these things, and, you know, um, yeah, I, th- I, I think Can't Get You Out of My Head was... I think you said it at the time was that it, it, you you asked the the very pertinent question: Has Daddy's hat fallen off? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think oh, you remember no. you saying that. And I remember thinking at the time, perhaps it has, perhaps yes. it has fallen off. But but I did. But again, like I did like it as, it, but it was a good vibe movie. And if you watch mm. it, you kind of do follow along with it, and then you think, oh, he's, he's giving me the slip somewhere here, like because I can't, because I'm not really. I he's gone off on. A, on like a tangent somewhere and I'm not with him but but mm. it, it comes back around eventually like I've, I've watched I've watched Can't Get It Out of My Head once all the way through and I've watched like little bits of it again mm. and I do agree with you it's it's really really t- tough to, to keep a handle on Can't Get It Out of My Head mm. and it's even harder to keep a handle on Trauma Zone like I think the the one he's just put out about Russia oh I've not seen that yet yeah he, he's not on it at all it's all subtitled there's no oh what there's the I know I I don't know what's happened I don't know if he's if he's been teased about his style or whatever <laughs> I, the, but the big man has taken a back oh, seat no. I know right but it's it's all like it's it's an Adam Curtis film but his part is all told through subtitle over the film and it is it, it um and it's a t- it's a tough watch is like because I think because I think with him if you look at his like history of his films and his series mm-hmm. and all that it's like he'll do like a couple of little 
bits and pieces and then every now and again it's like cometh the hour cometh the man you know like he puts out something that's like exactly what people need at exactly the right time and then he has this big explosion and then he does a bunch of really obtuse shit to like throw off like throw off the fair weather fans (laughs) and then and then like so i think like power nightmares was like the last like you know, because that was something. Because I remember that being a big deal at the time. Yeah. And then after that, I can't remember what it was. Was it, was it essentially the self? No, after that, no, the trap it was the trap. After that, wasn't it? Oh, right. Which was a bit more tricky. And then it was like mm-hmm. a couple of other. And there was Bitter Lake, which was you know kind of like a proto hypernormalization, but it was specific journalism about Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. Yeah. And then it was hypernormalization, which was a huge thing. And then it was his daddy's hat fallen off, and now it's this really. <laughs> dense russian thing yeah. which you know is there to shake off all the all the casuals until he's ready to come out with another like stadium filler <laughs> <laughs> yeah we just need to hang on in there and just yeah. join, join the waiting list and yeah um... it'll be, be back on the hit soon enough <laughs> i was good well yeah, because I was going to say, like, it's funny because I used to watch Adam Curtis films, like, YouTube in when I... I can't remember when it was. Sort of just left uni. <laughs> and now, I mean, he's he's huge. I don't know how to, like, put it. <laughs> so it's, I see people that I would have never, ever suspected to be Adam Curtis fans being like, yes, a bit of, like, hyper-normalisation, you know, getting the T-shirts and stuff. So I think it's, like, they're challenging. Even, I think, his his best work quote-unquote, is still challenging. So it's weird to see <laughs> yeah. him, like, move into, like, the mainstream. Yeah, because I, I remember seeing, like... I remember the first thing I downloaded of his was the Mayfair set, which was, like, the series he put out before... I'm looking at the thing on Wikipedia now. Oh. Yeah, so it was the Mayfair set in 99, which was about the asset strippers. But like, even that, like, if you look at that, you can see, like... The um the remnants of well not the re- not the remnants but like you, you can see where he's going to end up going because it's all about the asset strippers like mm-hmm. like to James Goldsmith who like bought stripped and flipped all these companies and then if you go on his Wikipedia page like he basically founded what became UKIP and his son is Zach Goldsmith what? right yeah yeah but this is it but these are the kind of people that um that Adam Curtis like dredges up these yeah. people who are like and like that guy in um um the century of the self mm-hmm. the, um Edward Bernays who uses you know yeah. Freud's nephew who uses Freud's psychoanalysis to sell like coke and stockings and all the rest of it yeah. you know and about like the self-help business and all the rest of it and then like the power of nightmares about neoconservatism and all the rest of it but um i remember downloading the mayfair set while i was at university like because i was i was at university in manchester um 2008 2012 so this was like i don't think it was on youtube then i think there was a website called like uk tv torrents and it was like it was a i'm telling you now right if you <laughs> if you were there just for like a couple of casual episodes you could get the fuck out because they were <laughs> they were taking it dead serious on there like i remember at one time somebody um, I remember looking in like because like a lot of those torrent sites back then had like um, like a log of all the torrents that had been deleted, and somebody had like deleted um, the Emmerdale Christmas special because it had been mislabeled. And they were like, um, "There's a there's an extended dream sequence in this, so it is not part of the existing Emmerdale canon," oh or God. something like that. But it was like a really hardcore. But it had like it had like the full archive of basically anything that had been on terrestrial television in the past thirty years. You know, like uh, that's almost certainly all gone now. Like it was like that was, you know, an incredible resource. But I remember downloading the Mayfair set of Mm. that and, and, you know, like much the same as you, just like, because, you know, because I, because I remembered him from, 
because I watched the Mayfair set. The Mayfair set came out in 99, but I watched it in like 2011, I think it was, mm-hmm. after seeing bits of the Power of Nightmares at the time. Cause I, cause, and he used to be on Charlie Brooker quite a lot because I remember watching Screen White back in the day because he did two things for Charlie Brooker called Oh Dear about mm-hmm. how you can't really do anything in the face of bad news other than just say Oh Dear and that's it, you know? I remember which, that. Which is, which, which, you know, he doesn't get credit for being funny, but I think he is really funny because that's a really funny observation about like mm-hmm. how the money from Live Aid was squandered and like it led to actually more deaths than it would have <laughs> if they hadn't mm-hmm. done Live Aid at all and extended the war by how many years. And all you can say is Oh Dear, right? <laughs> it's just <laughs> you know it. and yeah. that's all you could do right and um but yeah I, I remember seeing him on that and and there was a sequence on screen wipe years ago where they showed like a bunch of teenagers a bunch of like youth focused programming like um like um my super sweet 16 and all these other things and they told them put your hand up when you're bored and they were showing them all the youth focused stuff and they were all sticking a hand up immediately they were like this isn't this is just pandering it's crap and then charlie brooker who obviously i think knows adam curtis showed them the power of nightmares and they all kept their hands down and they used it as an example of like you don't need to yeah no, I, th- I think it, i think you, i think this clip is still on youtube of charlie brooker basically running a focus group with a bunch and they're like 15 to 15 to 18 right and the, and and adam is on a on full tilt about like the dark pessimism setting in and all these teenagers just watching like slack jawed you know but they're all invested in it you know because i think that i think that, that might have been how i found out about adam curtis i think oh. was through screen wipe thinking way back on it i think that might have been it oh i see i guess you explained it there like how did you come to it because i i can't properly even remember how i found out about him mean me neither i think i think that's probably it because I, I was big into like screen white back in the day i remember watching that when it went out on like i think it was, on, was it bbc4 screen white yeah, i remember that yeah. going out because a friend of mine at school was like, oh yeah you gotta watch it's really funny and um, and I was big into like Charlie Brooker's like Guardian column at the time and all the rest of it because you know I was I was eighteen and and you are you are then aren't you? <laughs> yeah, and, it's uh, a phase that we all go through. Yeah, we all go through the phase, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that was it, you know. And and this this kind of fed into like that idea that, that I mentioned, like where uh, like basically all the advice we got from school about about interacting with the world mm. was just just read the Guardian and watch the BBC and you'll piece it together, like. No, no critical evaluation of like any political leanings of any of these publications they were showing us. It was just like this is a correct answer to the question of like the deficit or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. This is the correct answer of how to run the world, and you need to know what the right answer is. You know, like. But that I think that's how I came to him, and then I came back to him through Chapel Trap House because he went on there to be interviewed about because like, I'd watched the Power of Nightmares, I watched the Mayfair set, and I kind of. Um, you just didn't cross my radar because like Bitter Lake went straight onto the iPlayer, so I missed that one. Um, but uh, and he and he did and again he did all that like punch drunk stuff where he was doing that like immersive theatre and that stuff with Massive Attack, like he was doing all these weird things. And again, I think to shake off the casuals he picked up, I th- I do think that's part of it with him. <laughs> is that I I don't think he likes like too much of that kind of attention. If you know what I mean, so. Yeah. Like, and I came back around with hypernormalization. That's and and um, um, and he hasn't managed to shake me off again just yet. But give it, give him time. He's trying with the subtitles. He's trying. <laughs> um, I was going to ask because obviously we are um, podcast masters. Hundred um, percent. So, 
How do you think? Because you see, I haven't watched many of his interviews, so I don't know anything about his process or whether he reveals any of his process. So I was going to ask, like, what do you think of how he would actually go about making these films? Because obviously it's just clip after clip after clip. And as someone who is just... Um, who is kind of trying to do this art form now of editing it stresses me out thinking about how he does it yeah well actually i've heard him i've heard a good number of interviews with him um so i heard him on um because he went on uh komodo mayo when um can't get it on my head came out and he did he did a very good interview with um adam buxton adam buxton's podcast like I'm neither here nor there on Adam Buxton, but I'll listen to the big man talking about anything. So I, I downloaded <laughs> it, and and he was talking about like the process. So so because he, he said with um like oh, well when was it? I think it was a couple of years ago. I think it was when Hypernormalization came out. He he basically paid for like an ex camera guy from the BBC to go to all the BBC offices around the world and digitize all the tapes that they had in the library, like all the rushes. So like when they use like a 20 second clip of like Afghanistan on the news, that's 20 seconds of like a half an hour of footage, you know? So he, because um, I can't remember which interview this was from, but he said um, somebody went around his gaff and he was living above like an art studio thing and uh, or like working above one. And he just had like a, like a kitchen island covered in hard drives and they'd be labeled things like China 1984 to 1990 or like Russia 1992 to 1993, like everything they had, like terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of stuff. And he said, um, I'm going I'm to do my six out of 10 Adam Curtis impression again. But he said, like, <laughs> he said, he said so, so what I tend to do is I just sort of, you know, just sort of, I just sort of go shopping, you know, and, and I mark, I mark the tapes. So if, if something, if I really, really want something, I'll put uh, V, 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 good. You know, and the number of V's corresponds to how much he likes it. I don't know. Yeah. But, but he said, he said he just watches everything on like 10 X speed. And if he sees something he really likes, he just puts a marker on it. And then he goes back through the stuff that he's marked. And he's like, right, what have I got here then? You know, and that's how he does it. I know it's insane. It's insane the way he does it. Like, because someone said, "Oh, you must have like people assisting you with all this." Like going through the footage. He said, yeah. "No." He said, "I do it almost." He scrubs through years of tape at like whatever X speed. But but because he's been doing it for so long, like like have you heard the story of like how he got started? Like the first thing he did. No, no, I haven't. Have you ever seen um um that? Like this was like like the first ever British viral video, right? It was like that. I think it was on That's Life with Esther Ranson, that guy who had like a dog that would say sausages. <laughs> no, Have you heard of this clip? No. Yeah, it was like it was. It was basically it was on every clip right. show in Britain from like the time it went out to like like two thousand and five. Like oh my it, God. It, if there was like a best of TV, you know, like every year like the BBC would have like a best telly moments ever, and it was like you know Del Boy falling through the bar and whatever. But like <laughs> the the that's life with Esther Anson, the the bloke whose dog can and the dog would would, would go like sausages, right? <laughs> Uh, and it turned out later that the guy had been like had been like squeezing the dog's throat to make no. it so yeah yeah but this guy who like because that's life was like like a magazine show you know like um mm. like funny characters and all the rest of it um adam curtis directed sausages 
that was his first. God. I swear to God, right? You can look this up, right? So he, he, um, he, his first TV job was working um, on That's Life with Esther Ranson, and he said it was like massively informative to him. You know, because he said he said the thing I learned while I was working on That's Life is if you've got somebody who thinks they're funny, they're not funny. But if you've got somebody who's being very serious, well, that's that. If the longer you leave them on the screen, the the funnier it gets. Because a, a person who says their dog can sing, well, that's not funny. But a person who says their dog can sing and the dog won't sing, well, that's very funny indeed because you get to watch them panic and you just don't cut away from them. <laughs> so oh the, I swear to God, the, the big man was making TV, like like that's life for restaurants and he produced sausages. Oh my god, that's like, but I didn't, do you know what? I asked that question. I didn't expect you to even have an answer for it. Really. <laughs> I I'm, a, I'm, like... a, I'm a psycho mega fan for the big man, honestly. Like, that's so interesting, though. I've got, yeah, I've got to, I've got to up my game. I thought I was a fan, and like, yeah, because uh, do you know what? I, we'll I... drop sausages in the show notes for. <laughs> Yes, it'll be link below um, if you want to check that out. Um, I feel like I've missed like a huge cultural moment as well in like British society. Not knowing what that is. I think it was it was definitely before my time because I think I, I think I think I'm de- I'm definitely older than you. I think I don't know by how much, but I think I'm older than you. But like it was ju- it was like thirty four. I'm thirty five, so, I, so I'm I'm older than you. Right? But um, but, but like <laughs> he says, like. <laughs> You kids, right? But like, it was the sort of thing. Like, I didn't see it go out, but I think my parents did. Do you know what I mean like your parents would probably know about sausages, oh. the dog? You know, because if because yeah. it, it was one of like back when there was like two channels, like sausages, the dog. I swear to God, like like pandemonium at work the next day. Do you know what I mean? Like up and down the country. Oh my God, did you fucking see sausages? Oh fuck! And then li- literally like thirty years later, this guy is doing like seven hours film about the disintegration of the Soviet Union. <laughs> and he's winning a BAFTA for the, for Bitter Lake. <laughs> it's so fun. like it, can, it. It's it's one of those things like like much as like in hypernormalization like because and one of the things that I think is interesting watching hypernormalization back now is that mm-hmm. because it's all about like Donald Trump and about how he ended up becoming this like comedic character, this like vaudeville villain. Mm-hmm. It's easy to look back on that and think. Oh yeah, well of course, but like hypernormalization came out before Donald Trump won the election, and it looks like it came out after because it it basically does predict it and says like this is the only logical solution is that he wins, right? And I think to to look back on that, yeah, the only logical solution, to the, like the only thing that makes narrative sense is the guy who made sausages ends up <laughs> being one of the one of the most respected like documentary filmmakers in the in the UK, you know. <laughs> I had no idea that that came out before because I've been watching it as though it's like not like I've been like yeah Adam we know you know what I mean yeah (laughs) no it um, looks like that though doesn't it yeah to look back on it because I forgot because I saw it after because I think like because the the Chapo episode where he was on and that is a really good I think it was on episode number 60 it's called like No Future and he's talking about hypernormalization and at the very end of it they ask him like what do you think real change might look like and he said, um, he said, he said, the thing that the middle classes, the comfortable middle classes have to ask yourself is, do you really want change? 
And I mean, do you really want it? Or do you just want the banks to be a little bit nicer? And do you want people to be a little bit more respectful of each other's identities? All of which is fine. But if you really want social change, then that means losing things, lo- losing lots of the things that make your life so happy. And once you see the, middle, the comfortable middle class is giving themselves up to something that is larger than themselves, and he says, then you'll know that they're, and he said, but there's nothing like that in their imagination at the moment. And the episode just cuts. It's a really good episode. I think it's called No Future. It's um, one of Chapo Trap House's episodes. But that came out the episode after Trump won. And hypernormalization have been showing, I think, in America around the time. And there are, if you look back at like contemporaneous reports, there are people being like, get a load of this fucking goofball talking about Trump like he's got half a chance of winning. Do you know what I mean? But, oh, no. But he was yeah. right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's cutting. It's fucking I, wild. I'm definitely, I'm going to dig that out. And um, yes, I will add a link. This is kind of new to me. So I'll add a link in the show notes. Check the I show forgot. notes. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that was a thing. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, and that's not to go like off topic, but I think that that is like the main struggle with me with like class and politics is like you, you if you're privileged and you want like, you know, social change, you have to make room, basically. You have to like give things up, make room. Yeah, you know. well, well, this is this, this is. I think this is what you were saying is that you know, like, revo- like revolution is is messy because because and mm. he doesn't really talk about it in hypernormalization, but he does talk about it in that chapter episode, and it's really interesting. He talks about um like the Occupy movement, like the Occupy Wall Street thing, because mm. he said it just it just it just fizzles out to nothing because like they got all these people together, they had a great slogan, yeah. and he said, and then they all looked around and they and they said, well, what do we do now? And none of them knew, totally, you know? none of them had an idea of a different kind of future. You know? I was, and, yeah, I was going to say yeah. I was actually there on Wall Street. Um, I wasn't what, camping serious? out. Yeah, but I went and like Ew. was there a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody hell. Um, when was it? Like 2010? Yeah. Sort of, uh, but yeah, it was yeah, very... Yeah, It was quite... Um, yeah, that was just the prevailing feeling of it. Just what? what is... Do we live... Do people live here now? Or... Because well, people find it funny. The the everyone else, they the bankers and stuff found it funny. They didn't yeah, care. I've I've seen videos of them looking down on the protests and laughing. Yeah. You know, like yeah. and but the th- the thing is like because and he talks about it is that it was all that circular organizing where everyone's in a big circle mm. and like and nobody was really supposed to to take any leadership and it was this idea of just like like because he, he says it on the chapel episode you know he said they were trying to imagine a world without power and he said you can't imagine a world without power if you want to make changes then you have to figure out a way to make these awful powerful people work in a way that works for you and he's and he's and, and on the episode he said they've almost left it to game of thrones and i think he was right about that is that a lot of people especially on the left um you know as, as adam curtis calls them you know my so-called liberal friends a lot mm. of them did leave it to game of thrones you know like they just use that as like a power play and the the idea of actually seizing seizing the wheel of power was almost seen as like tawdry do you know what i mean like yeah yeah and and it, it's true what you say especially in regards to class and that because you know like yeah i'm from like a i'm from like a working class background and everything mm-hmm. and you know this idea of you know making lasting societal change well yeah it is it's messy and it and it does involve risk because if you look at you know other countries that have done it like like you know you know libya um you know places like that you know the arab spring and all that it is is really really difficult it's really really hard to get it done and it and it does carry a significant degree of risk mm. but this was true what he says you know there is no it's you know there is no picture of a better world that anybody's selling really you know mm. And it was true when he's, it's even more true now, I think, especially in this country, you know, like I just, you know, I think he was, 
you know, I think uh, again, I think he, he would probably reject this himself. But I think like he mm. does, he does have an, an acute sense of the way the wind is blowing. I think it's demonstrable from him essentially predicting a Trump win. You know, dedicating yeah. so much time and hypernormalization to Trump when, you know, like one of the bookies over here, I think it was, I think it was Paddy Power, were paying out Hillary wins the night before the election because they didn't want to take any more bets. Really? Yeah, they were paying out Hillary. They were saying, right, no more bets on Hillary. We're paying out. We're paying out as if she's won. Bloody hell. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Oh my God. It's wild, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. Cause I remember like how mad it was. And there's like there's a clip that is like yeah, just news reporters just laughing about the, even the idea that he would even come close to a win. Yeah, because I think one of his supporters put like a fan cam together and I remember seeing it. I, I can't remember the I can't remember what the music called. I think it's is it in the Hall of the Mountain King? Like, da, 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 Oh, yes. Yeah. And it gets faster and faster and faster. And it's yeah. all these people laughing at Trump and saying, I've got a hope in hell. And it ends yeah. up that final, da, 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 bang, it's him getting inaugurated. Yes. I remember seeing that. Oh, my God. Because I, and, but the thing is, because at the time, like, I was, you know, I was what Adam Curtis would have called my so-called liberal friends, you know, because I didn't, <laughs> yes. I didn't really have a good sense of, of, like, my political feeling. Like, I, I come from a long line of, like, you know, hardcore socialists and trade unionists but i didn't see how that applied to my life in like 2015 or whatever mm. you know like you know i was you know i was a union man and all the rest of it but like how does how does that how do we how do we make a change in the world based on the world i don't know mm. and you know i was you know a, a lot of people i was speaking to were saying oh yeah you know donald trump blah, blah, fucking joke and all the rest of it mm. and i thought oh yeah yeah it's not never gonna happen but i remember seeing one thing that made me think oh no do you know what i mean and it was mm. it was the debates against <laughs> against hillary and she was yeah. up there in that fucking suit and she said, um, well, I'm just glad that people like Donald Trump don't make the laws in our country. And he turned around and said, yeah, because you'd be in jail and people yes. cheered. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, no. <laughs> like Just yeah. that moment, because you'd be in jail and people clapped. I thought, there we go. Yeah, it was That's a turning point. He was also doing a lot of stuff where he was like getting really close to her and stuff. And, and I saw more people than you would think, you know, just sort of intimidating behavior. Obviously, a lot of people do think stuff like that's good. Like, it's not, they don't see it as like a sexist thing or like, you know, they just think like, yeah, you should dominate. Yeah. Whoever dominates should be in charge. <laughs> it's like a sort of animalistic thing. Yeah. And you can just say whatever you like and, you know, like. Yeah. You know this woman's a criminal, and and but the thing, but the the thing is, is because there was, you know, because Hillary Clinton was not well liked, and because she did genuinely have a lot of questions hanging over her, mm. you know, like you know, what could they do? Could they go after Donald Trump for his, you know, because that, and that thing where he said, oh, you know, Donald Trump hasn't paid a penny in federal income tax in however many years, and he got on the microphone and said that makes me smart, and people clapped. Exactly. Because they felt the same way. Is that well? No, if I could do what he did, I would do it as well. Totally. You know, but but the, but you know, again, to, to bring it bring it back to the big man, he saw all that mm. and managed to crystallize it in a document before everybody came out and was like, "Yeah, well, I knew he was going to win." You know, like mm. I think I don't know I don't know if he was I don't know if he because I remember I, I read a thing in the Guardian before before this today, like because um, hypernormalization came out I think in October of 2016, and they asked him about Trump 
and he said, well, if Hillary wins, then it'll prove that, um, you know, Trump was basically just a pantomime villain and all the rage and all the, you know, the anger about him was for nothing because nothing's really going to change, mm-hmm. you know, because Hillary will go in and things will just carry on as usual. You know, she'll depose Assad and all this other stuff. Yeah. And they said, well, what happens if Trump wins? And he said, well, that means that the pantomime has become reality and then we're all fucked. Like he said that in his Guardian interview, and yeah, I, you know, I don't know if he, I don't know if he saw it coming, but I think, you know, I think he was tuned into something there that a lot of people at the time were just f- flatly dismissed, including the bookies, because you know, you think about how rarely the bookies get it wrong, mm. you know. Definitely. It's nuts, isn't it? But like that, it just just some of the reasons why. I am in love with the big man and his body of work. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just, yes. it's just so rich and it's so much to sink your teeth into. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he did sausages and he did, <laughs> and he did the power of nightmares and he did all this weird stuff and he's done stuff for Charlie Brooker and some of his films are funny, but not in a way you'd expect. And yeah, they're long, but the, the, the vibe is absolutely spot on. Every mm. single time the vibe is correct. You can't knock him for that, right? Yeah, they're long, and sometimes, you know, Daddy's Act does come off, but, but the music's always right, and it's always... It, 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 there is always, like, an emotional thread to him as well, you know? Like, they always look great. Uh, I don't know. I just... Uh, I, 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 re- I think he's magic. I really do. That's beautiful. I think that would be a perfect place to end. Um, have you got anything else you'd like to add, though? I think I, I think that's everything in it. I mean, I feel like I, I think I think we've covered I think we've covered the big man enough there. I mean, yes. I don't. Know, I, yeah, I just I think like he's yeah, you know, he's not for everybody, but I think he's been right more often than he's wrong. I think and because he, he does say like it's hard to tell his politics from watching his films, and I think that's largely true. But I do think he's at least if, if not directly in favour of. I think he is supportive of progressive ideals. You know, mm. I I know every you know every side claims people for their own, don't they? But I think like he's obviously sympathetic to it because he said as much about um, Zuccotti Park and um, uh, Occupy when he was on Chapa Trap House. Um, mm. But I, I just think it's such a singular body of work, and it's it's you know it's like I said, like how many documentary filmmakers who work purely with archive and rushes mm. stuff that was never intended for air. How many people can you look at? their output and say that is that person 100% no yeah. doubt in my mind it's just you know I don't know I I, I really do like I don't know I just I just love the big man Jane I gotta be honest <laughs> like I can't say enough how much I like him and I know this is such typical like you know uh, men be liking Adam Curtis you know what I mean <laughs> What do you call it? What's the plural for a group of men? It's a podcast of men and they're all talking about Adam Curtis. Thank you very much. But I know I really do. I, do I, I just, I just love him, Jane. I just love him. That's beautiful. But that's almost, that's why I've just loved having you on the podcast. This has been so insightful and like you've blown my mind with some of this you've told me. I'm going to go, I'm going to go to my own show notes. And, and I'll say thank you as links. well for having me on as well for this. Cause I'll, oh, cause I'll tell you something. My miss is sick of hearing about him. So it's just, <laughs> it's just nice to speak to somebody else who is also a true believer of the big man. So thank you very much for having me on the show. No, thank you, John. So there we have it. I think that was the most comprehensive Adam Curtis interview that has ever been done. And I include in that interviews with Adam Curtis. Thank you so much to John for coming on and sharing his passion and knowledge and obsessiveness. (laughs) 
with this. Do make sure that you go and you check out all of John's work. Follow him on social media. He's a great tweeter. You'll love some of John's tweets and some of the unmissable work that he has been working on over the years. And now comes time for me to ask for your kindness and support. If you could like and subscribe or whatever kind of terminology they are using on the platform that you're listening on, that would be very much appreciated. We've got lots of exciting episodes coming up. So I would really appreciate you staying in touch. And if you've enjoyed this, share it on your socials. Do we still use the word socials? I don't know. But I would really, really appreciate you spreading the word if you feel like it. Thank you very much for listening to this first episode and I hope you have a wonderful day. 